All right, let's open our Bibles up to Hebrews chapter 1. The book of Hebrews, in its summation, is entirely different from any other New Testament book. It is entirely different. Kind of like Romans, and you're going to see that here in a little bit. Even its introduction, it stands out as something that's not seen anywhere else in the New Testament. In the beginning of the book, you're going to see that it comes across as more of an essay. It kind of comes across that way. And as we continue through it, it kind of morphs into a sermon. And then by the time we get to the end of it, you're going to see that it sounds more like a personal letter. So this is a very extraordinary book in the Bible. There's been great speculation as to who is the author of the book of Hebrews. Listen, I've been a Bible teacher for over 30 years. I have talked to more guys... uh, apologists, we understand who apologists are, because on my radio show I had a lot of apologists on. And, you know, everybody's got their opinions. The truth is, is that the book doesn't say who wrote it. Now, some people have suggested that Apollos wrote it. We just studied about him. Some people have suggested that Aquila and Priscilla wrote it. Some people have suggested, uh, oh my gosh, that Barnabas wrote it. Now, The truth is, and like I said, no one really knows. We don't really know. Now, my humble opinion, and you are free to discard if you want, or to take it, it doesn't matter, but I and many other fellow Bible teachers who are absolutely correct (laughs) believe that the Apostle Paul wrote this, and you're going to see why. And why do I believe that? Because that's why I always teach Romans and Hebrews together, back-to-back, Miriam. Why? Because you're going to see... As we went through Romans, you know how strict, how straightforward Paul was in presenting the gospel. You're going to see that reflected. Same terms. Now, did he write this? I believe he did. And I'm telling you that to say this. I'm asking for your indulgence as I present this book to you. Because I will often say Paul says here. And I want you just, if you disagree with me, and you're obviously wrong, but if you do, then you can, you know, just, just indulge me and just say, poor Doug, he can't help it, you know. So I've always believed it. Uh, I'm not the only one. There's many people who do. But it's just a great, great epistle. And, you know, we're told that the Word of God is given by inspiration. In the Greek, that word is theonoustos. It means God breathed. And man, his breath is in this book. And it just flows through it so easily. But it exalts Jesus Christ so high and and puts him at the superiority of all things. And that's why I love it so much. And I want you to get this, man. Jesus is superior to everything. He is all. He is above all. He is absolutely worthy of all the adoration that we could place upon him. So what was the intent of this book? Almost from the beginning, as you're going to see, the intent of the book of Hebrews was to reach the Jewish Christians. I actually had thought about wearing my prayer shawl tonight, just to illustrate the fact. Uh, But I, I chose against it. I haven't really dug that thing out in a long time. It's more of a decoration in my study now. Uh, but there was a time I thought about it. Maybe when we get to John. But it's, it was to reach them. Because why? Well, so many of them had, after having come to faith in Christ, what did they begin to do? Now, 
the temple was still standing at this time. The time of this writing was about 60-something A.D. We, we know because Paul mentions Timothy in it. So it's very early in the spreading of the gospel. So the temple was still there because the temple wasn't destroyed until 70 A.D. when Titus came in and wiped it out, and of course, and it's been gone ever since. So it's fairly early. But the Jewish Christians, even though they had put their faith in Jesus Christ, some of them had began to say, well, maybe we still need to go back to the temple. Maybe we need to offer that sacrifice, you know. So this is what the Apostle Paul, in dealing with this situation that rose very early in the church, listen to me, gang, legalism is nothing new. It's always been, from, from the inception of the church, there's always been that tendency for us to go back to the menial things as far as worship is concerned. You know, what are we failing in? Well, we need to do more. We need to try harder. We need to do better. I read somebody very close to me uh, recently wrote a post on Facebook. I ought to quit reading that thing. <laughs> and he meant well, because I know this kid. I know him. He loves the Lord. But he's looking around at whatever fellowship he attends and he's seeing some things that he's not real you know, comfortable with and he, he's kind of concerned about. And that's fine. But what he said, he wrote this little dissertation and I know it sounded knowledgeable, but here's what he said. We need to do more. We need to try harder. We need to stress. We need to, we, 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 we. Except the Lord build the house, those that labor do it in vain. Man, can we get that into our hearts? It's the truth. Hebrews is going to drive this home. That Jesus was the high priest. He already went into that holy temple, placed his blood for once and for all upon that altar, and nothing is left to be done. But bask in it. And Paul's going to drive that home. So this is what he's addressing. The Jewish Christians who were tending to want to go back to the ritual, you know, wanting to go back to the sacrifice because the temple was still standing. Having said that, let's go ahead and jump into verse 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers, by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us, how? By his son. Listen to me. This isn't in my notes. I'm going to start off even getting off my notes. There are so many people and have been for a few hundred years and generations gotten worse as the church history has went on, gang, that every now and then we have people who come up with what we call extra-biblical revelation. You know, they want to tell us, well, God has also said... The Mormons wrote a whole book about it. Or the Jehovah Witnesses wrote a whole book about it. Also God said, you know, that God said this, or I had a revelation of this or that, and they come in and they want to begin to tell us, well, God speaks to us. It says very clearly here, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. So if it didn't emanate from the mouth and from the heart of Jesus Christ, it probably isn't worth listening to, to be honest. You can't back up something unless it comes exactly through the Son and the Word of God because He is the Word of God. There's so many people, though, today. You see this over and over again. Facebook's filled with it. Every time I turn around, somebody's going, well, I had a vision. 
How do these people, you know, that's one of the problems of being on radio, because if you look at my Facebook page, I've got like six or 7,000 people used to listen to me, and they're still on there, and some of them are crazy. They are, and, it, and, and I hate to delete them, you know, you, and, and, you, and I don't have time to fix them. I can't. You know, you, you start talking to them, and you teach doctrine, and all of a sudden, they're like reeling in there, and then finally, you have to you know, go away, you know, because there's no fixing them, you know? People just go crazy sometimes. So, you know, keep me in prayer on that one, you know. But it's Jesus Christ. You know, I love the way Paul starts this book. <laughs> one word, God. God. I love this because Paul says it in an emphatic, absolute way. God. Who in sundry? God. There's no argument for the existence of God. He doesn't begin telling us, well, you know, God really does exist. And here's like, no. He says it emphatically. It's a fact. God. God. It's almost exactly like the book of Genesis, you know, in the beginning. God. I always loved that. I heard an old preacher one time. I loved him. Well, he wasn't old. It was just a long time ago. But he got there and he was teaching on that. And he said, I love the way when it says, in the beginning, God. He says, get all these guys under atheists. He says, the Bible still says God. Deal with it. You know, it's God. God is real. He's absolutely real. Great Christian philosopher, Francis Schaeffer. If you've never read him, read him. You know, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book years ago called He is There and He is Not Silent. I love it. Because in essence, that's what Paul is saying here. God in sundry times and in diverse manners. In the Old Testament, we're given many examples of this, the, you know, of the prophets who spoke to the fathers and how they did it in different ways. Very cool. Sometimes they did it through parables. Sometimes they did it through prophetic utterances. Sometimes they did it through dramatic presentation or even proclamations. You know, they did it through psalms. They did it through proverbs and the like. Not only did the prophets speak in different manners, as, as you see there, but more importantly, God spoke to the prophets in different ways, which I think is also very cool. He spoke to them in, in, in Exodus chapter 3. We see God speaking to Moses through what? A burning bush. And that's actually even cooler because when you're, when you're studying, I'll throw this one in for free. When you're studying, get yourself a good concordance if you got that, or a, a Greek or a Hebrew lexicon. Because when it says, you know, God's, you know the, the Lord spoke to Moses through the bush. When you look up the word bush there, it's very interesting because it was an acacia bush, which is a thorn bush. Whoa, so what, Doug? Well, that's significant because when it's translated, it just says bush. But it was a thorn bush. Now, why is that significant? Because before the fall of man, there was no such thing as thorns on the earth. You knew that, right? There were no thorns. Hmm. Didn't know that, did you? Yeah. Thorns are a cause of the fall. Thorns, which represent hermeneutics, gang. Take note. Hermeneutics, thorns always represent what? Sin. So here we see Jesus Christ because we're told in the New Testament, no man has seen the Father at any time, but Jesus Christ has revealed him to us. So when we see God in the Old Testament, it's always in the person of Jesus Christ, his pre-incarnate, which we're going to be talking about. But he spoke to Moses through that bush which had thorns. There'd be another time that Jesus would speak through thorns, but that wouldn't be for 2,000 more years later on the cross. Very important. So it's those little things, you know? 
The Bible says, you know, we love the things to know the things of God, yea, the deep things of the Lord. And so sometimes you got to look past a little bit. So, you know, it's very cool, very neat stuff. So he spoke to them that way, different ways. And so, so in Exodus, we see that, you know. First Kings 19, I think it's interesting. Elijah, you know, the Lord spoke to him, what, in that small, still voice. You remember that when he was in the cave? And then we, we, we see Hosea, God speaking to him through a personal family crisis. Or even the prophet Amos, who was directed by a basket of fruit, which I think is just weird, <laughs> you know? And then you have the flipping of fleeces. And, and how so often, how many times I've heard people say, well, you know, I was praying and I threw out a fleece to the Lord. Have you ever heard that term? Huh? I'm not going to go into it, but I just think it's interesting. This is how they answer prayer. I threw out a fleece. I go, listen to me. In Times past, or let's read what Paul says again. At sundry times and in diverse manners, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. In sundry times. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. I don't have to worry or interpret whether there's dew on the fleece or whether it's dry in the morning to determine whether God said anything. Now I know because I can look to the son. I can listen to him. And I know exactly what the heart of the Father is concerning me, concerning you, at any point and at any given time in my life. We don't have to walk that way anywhere. But at that time, that's what happened. In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, Jesus, the Logos, the incarnate word, offered the woman at the well living water. You know the story. In Ephesians 5.26, Paul says this, that the groom would sanctify and cleanse the bride with the washing of water by the word. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to think, when, he, when God says at sundry times, and in diverse ways, you know, he spake to the fathers through the prophets. I want you to think of those, the way God spoke back then, is like little streams of water, because the water always represents the word of God. Little streams, but they were culminating together through time. And they would eventually come forth in these last days. And they would be turned into this great torrent of living water. It, 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 this is what would happen. So it was that God did this at one time. This is the way he did it. Little streams coming down through different ways, different types, through different methods. But yet he was pushing toward that all of them would converge into this huge river, this torrent of living water in these last days. Some people have thought about, you know, you think about the term last days. And even the Apostle Paul, when he spoke, believed, when, when the term was used, that he was going to see the coming of the Messiah. He believed he was in the last days. But from the Scriptures, we understand that when God spoke, and he said, you know, at sundry time, you know, in the last days, he's spoken to us by his son. In the last days, he's talking about from the time of the Messiah. So from the time that Jesus came and fulfilled all that the, the law and the prophets de declared of him, once that was done, thus on the cross, he said, Tostelestai, it is finished. Once that was done, we have been living, gang, in the last days. The clock has been ticking. The Bible says to God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. We perceive the space-time continuum. Now, though God created physics and the space-time continuum, he's not bound by it. To him, it's nothing but a drop in the bucket. So even though it seems like a long time, the last days, it is the last days. It is the last time, if you will. So we're living in that last segment of humanity. We're living in that last segment. And the closer to the end we get, 
Well, that's a whole other thing. That's a whole other thing about prophecy. But I believe we're, we are very close. So he says he's spoken to us by his son. As God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, many streams, if you will, of God's word coming together uh, is what he was doing. This is why revelation uh, that we have received through Jesus Christ is so unique. Not only is it purely God's message, but by and through Jesus Christ, we see personality of God through whom the message came. That's why it's important. God has spoken to us in these last days by his son. Now think about this. You, know, you, you look at the Old Testament and you see how God did it at different times, different ways, through the prophets, through whatever, through different circumstances, you know, baskets of fruit or whatever. Some of that was left open for interpretation. Some people could misread what God was trying to say. And thus, you know, when we, when we took up this study, I remember talking to you about the written word, and I said, one of the problems with the written word is sometimes we just don't understand how the, infra- the you know, the, uh, um, the inflection is. And so sometimes if somebody's reading the scriptures and they're reading it with anger, we might think that God's angry. Or if they're reading it with disgust, we might think that God is disgusted with us. But with Jesus Christ, when the message came, Jesus spoke it perfectly in love. So the cool thing about Jesus is not only did we get the word of God, but we got the inflection of God through him. We understand the tone in which it was given. Thus, Jesus would say in the gospel so many times, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth. But I say unto you. You know, and every time you see that, when we get to the Gospels, what you want to realize is what Jesus was saying. Let me clarify that for you. Let me clarify that for you. That's what he's really saying. Because why? Because when they read it, they read it with anger. Remember, Moses was stopped from going into the, into the promised land. Why? Because he misrepresented the voice of God. The, he got up there and he said, must I? <laughs> he was ticked off. Must I deliver water from the rock? And he struck the rock, what? Twice. And he misrepresented God. And the people walked away at that moment thinking that God was upset with them. And he wasn't upset with them. I mean, how, think about this. When, when, when you talk about and you think about an angry God, God is sovereign. Amen? He's sovereign. He knows all things. He knows everything there is to know about you. You could never disappoint him. How can you disappoint somebody who knows everything there is to know about you? Everything that you've ever done, ever thought, ever will think, ever will do. And yet he accepted you anyway. How could he ever be disappointed in you? Before I came to church tonight, I had a young lady who we haven't seen in what? Year? I was her pastor for many, many years. And I love this kid. But she took a time here a couple years ago and decided to do a back dive off the deep end uh, into the world. And uh, during that time, I met with her many times. She came over and talked to me and my wife. And we just tried to love her back into the kingdom, you know? Because I knew eventually she'll snap out of it, you know? She knows the Lord. So we just tried to love her back into it. Well, she called me finally tonight. And, you know, she uh, is getting married. And uh, she was uh, wanting me to, to do her wedding. And, but she started it off this way. It's kind of funny because she says... Uh, I just wanted to call because she calls me dad, and, and it's a whole other story. 
When you're in the pastorate, that happens. People just kind of, Paul the Apostle said, I've become all things to all men that by all means I might win some. Some of these kids looked at me like I was, you know, they didn't have a good relationship with their father. In her case, she had no father. She was adopted. So I was kind of ready. So it was, Dad, I just wanted to call you, because I hadn't heard from her in like a year. I just want to tell you I love you. I said, oh, your timing's absolutely perfect. Thanks, you know. And, of course, then the pitch, pinch came. Uh, well, I'm getting married. <laughs> so, oh, here it comes. <laughs> you know, so she wanted me to do it. But, you know, God isn't, and here's what she said, though. She said, I said, how come you haven't called me? How come you haven't come over? She goes, well, I, I knew I had disappointed you. And I said, you didn't disappoint. You, you, why, have I ever, you know, have I ever said anything that would indicate, why would I be disappointed with you? If God isn't disappointed with you, if he already knew, why would I be disappointed with you? I love you. I care about you. Oh, did I enjoy watching you go off the deep end? No, because I've done it myself. I know with the pain that that's going to bring in your life. I want to spare, spare you that. But disappointed? No. God isn't disappointed with you, man. God is So that inflection, the, the beauty of Jesus speaking to us is that not only do we get the message, the pure message of God, we get the inflection of the message of God. We understand it. Anything that can be known, you want to know how God thinks about you? Look to Jesus Christ. Study Jesus. Jesus even told us the same thing. It's not in my notes. I'm just going to preach for a second. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Isn't that cool? Isn't it? But we don't. We don't do it sometimes. But he says, do it. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the more we know about Jesus Christ, the more we know about what God thinks, because he is God incarnate. But we know what God thinks about us. And his thoughts towards you are what? Good. He wants to bless you. He has blessed you. He is blessing. And he wants to give you favor. And he has through his son, Jesus Christ. Thus, we want to learn more about Jesus, and we want to bask in that, you know. We get the message. We get the full message of God through Jesus Christ. And I want to make one point. Don't think that Jesus brought the message of God. He is the message of God. He didn't just bring the word of God. He is the word of God. You know, it is so important that we understand that. And so, so many people miss it. You know, they talk about, well, Jesus brought us to it. No, he, 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 it's more than that. So we get, he is the message. He is the word. He is the inflection of God. And every time Jesus spoke, he spoke in love. The only time that Jesus showed anger, righteous anger, which was justified, was to the Pharisees who were ripping the people off, who were leading the people astray, who were showing them that God was about money, you know, because they were in there selling, you know, taking advantage of the people. Why? Because the temple demanded that the sacrifice had to be perfect. So you couldn't just raise your own because then the, the high priest and all of them would come in and say, well, we got to look at that first. You raised that yourself? Let me look at that. Well, there's a little, if you move the fur back, there's a little spot right in here so now you'll have to but go over here to the temple, and we've got ones that are pre-approved. <laughs> That's what they did. It's pre-approved, you know, and for a few shekels more, you can, you can go with a clean conscience into the temple, and you'll be fine. And you know what Jesus did, right? First thing he did was he braided that whip. Now think about this for a second. I had a baby in the Lord tell me this one time. I had, a, I had been a pastor for a long time. And I just thought this was so cool. You know, the Bible says, you know, the mouth of babes, right? 
I had taught through this, and we had talked about, you know, Jesus braided that whip, and he went in, and, you know, he took care of business, okay? And here's this baby in the Lord. Of course, he was about 20-something at the time, but had just really been saved a handful of months. And he come to me, and he said, you know, Pastor Doug, he said, what patience did Jesus have? And, of course, I mean, in a general sense, I went, oh, yeah, God's patient with his brother, you know. He goes, no, I mean, he goes, have you ever... You ever braided a whip? <laughs> and I went, uh, well, what, what do you mean? He's going, well, do you think Jesus was like carrying around like long pieces of leather? I went, uh, well, I never really, what, what, what are you getting at? You know, he's going, no, think about it. He goes, he didn't just have long pieces of leather on him. He, he would have had to have looked for that. He would have had to have gotten it somewhere. And he says, and then he says, how long do you think it took him to braid it? And I said, you know, brother, all I know is what the book says, you know. <laughs> I just take it. He's going, no, look. And so his point was, and it was so good, was that even in that action of correction, Jesus was exemplifying the patience and the mercy of God. Why? Because it took him time to accumulate that leather and then to begin to braid it. He had to braid it first in order to create it before he ever went in. God is always looking to avert judgment, and he always wants to do that. If you'll simply put your faith in Jesus Christ, that is done for good. But the patience, and this is my point, is that Jesus not only is the word, he's not only the message, but he is the example, of, he's the example that we have of God. As far as his mercy, his grace, his favor, everything that can be known, man, he has shown it to us, even in correcting what he did there in the temple. Jesus is absolutely amazing. So Jesus, you know, and it's interesting to me when you talk about things like that. Jesus was talking about the issue of, of being, you know, God, you know. And he said in John 14, he said, if you know me, you should have known my Father also. See, once again, if you know Jesus, you know the Father. You want to know how God is? Learn of Jesus. Look to Jesus. Everything, he said, if you, if you don't, you wouldn't know my Father. Turn to John 14. I just want to share this with you. I just think this is absolutely so cool. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. I loved it when Dave said that this morning. He said, at any given time, I might tell you another verse is my favorite. Everybody, I've had people ask me a million times, on, you know, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And I say, yeah. <laughs> I, I know, because I, you know, I, I used to think I had one. I really don't. Uh, but that's a whole other story. John 14. Look at verse 7. He says, if you had known me, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said unto him, like so many other of us have said at one time or another, uh, Lord, show us the Father then, and it suffices. You know, what he's going is like, well, give me, yeah, show it, okay, show me. You know, he must have been from Missouri. You know, show me, and it'll suffice. I'll be, I'll be happy with that. And look at Jesus' response. Jesus said unto him, have I been such a long time with you, yet hast thou not known me? Philip he that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth 
the works. Powerful man. You know, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Everything that can be known to the Father is exemplified in him. Look at the rest of verse 2. Back in our text. Whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And upholding all things by the power of his word. When he by himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Wow. The sevenfold description of Jesus Christ is what Paul lays out here. Very, very powerful. In Romans 8, he talks about this issue of being heir. You know, in 8.17, he says, If we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be, you know, that we have suffered with him, that we may also be glorified together. So he is the heir of all things. This is the first part of his description, this sevenfold description. Number one, he is the heir of all things. And so because we are joint heirs, we get to partake in that. He made the worlds, he says. Another description, very powerful. Because we always, I've heard people, I've heard uh, several preachers over the years, you know, they talk about the, trying to set up, you know, the, uh, the Trinity. You know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, which is true. But they always talk about God the Father as the creator. That's not what the book says. <laughs> That's not what we're doing. We're not told that at all. We're told that Jesus made the world. Colossians 1.15, and look at this. And, and I'll tell you what, if you just want to write it down, you can read it later. Colossians 1.15 through 17. I'm going to read it for you. Talking about Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. Here Paul says he is the express image, okay? But he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That's impressive. You know, think about this. This is something that always blew me away. Here the disciples, Jesus walked with them. He talked with them. Now, you know, I just sang a song by Michael Carter, and in that song it says, you know, the Nazarene could hunger and the Nazarene could cry, and he could laugh with all the fullness of his heart. You know, we don't really think of Jesus as laughing. I mean, think about it. Because we just don't. Because so often we exalt his deity, which we should. But we, we do it to the expense of his humanity. You know, and that's why that song's so important. Because he was human. He was all human. He was all God, but he was all human. So Jesus had his disciples. I want to think about it. Look at those disciples. Remember, they were disciples long before they were ever apostles. Okay? In essence, they were knuckleheads before they were, you know. They were. And that gives all of us great hope. Okay? But think about some of the stuff that these guys would say and do. If you've been around men, and Chief has been around a lot of them for many years, he's a leader of men, you know? But when you get around a bunch of men, it's not all stern, is it, brother? Huh? There's a lot of laughter going on, ain't there? And there was with God, and there was with Jesus Christ. Now think about this. Here is the creator of the entire universe. Here he is, sitting around the fire with his men who have not a foggiest idea of who they are sitting in the presence of. They have no idea. 
They're sitting around breaking bread and breaking fish and asking the stupidest questions, you know? And, and, and here he is, the one who created all things, and yet he walked with them, he talked with them, and he was there taking care of them. He had come to do what no man could do, you know? And yet he accepted them, and he accepts us. And Jesus is so gracious in that area. This is why I love God. This is why I love the Lord so much, because he has come and he has walked more than a mile in my shoes. And he knows what it's like to go through what we go through, man. It is absolutely amazing to me. So often we get lost in that. Paul goes on here, number three of his sevenfold description is he's the brightness of his glory. Some have described this verse by saying that Jesus is the beam of God's glory, and that's okay. As we could never look at the Father and live because of his brightness, yet we can see the light that emanates from the Father through Jesus Christ. And, it, and he gives us illustrations of that even in the Old Testament. Remember when Moses wanted to see the Lord. And the Lord says, you wouldn't live. But here's what I will do. Let me put you in the cleft of the rock. And as I walk by, you know, you'll see my hinder parts. But he put him in the cleft of the rock. You know, we're told in the book of Hebrews, we're getting to it, that that rock, <coughs> pardon me, followed them in the wilderness, and that rock was Christ. So even, how, how, how was Moses able to see? Because I had a kid tell me this one time. He came up, he thought he caught me, in a, thought he caught me in, a, in a mistake. I actually thought he caught the Bible in a mistake. Because I was reading through John, and it says that no man has seen God at any time. When he came up, he goes, well, Doug, but, well, the Bible says Moses spoke with God face to face. And I said, yeah. Well, that's a contradiction. I said, no, that's revelation. What do you mean? If Moses spoke with God face to face, and then in the Gospel of John, it says that no man spoke, has never seen him. I said, read on, youngin. Read on. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son of God, he hath declared him. In the Greek, that word declared means made seen. So has God in all of his glory ever been seen? No, nobody could do it and live. But God has in these last days shown us not only his word, given us his word, but he has shown us his love and his mercy and his glory through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the expressed image of the Father. So he has made himself seen in the person of Christ. So every time in the Old Testament, when we see these, we call them Christologies in, in theology, when you see these Christologies, these images of Jesus, because that's what they are, the burning bush when he spoke with Moses, but that was, that was, a, that was Christ, Pre-incarnate, before he ever came, but there he was. When you see him, when Joshua, remember Joshua? When Joshua was getting ready to, to, to storm the walls of Jericho, he comes out of his tent and he sees this man, and I love this description. And as a soldier, man, you can get your fingers around this. He sees this guy, this knight, and, and he's just armed to the hilt. And Joshua looks up and he says, be ye friend or foe. And this guy says, take the shoes off your feet. For, oh, God, that's powerful. For the ground you stand on is holy. I am the captain of the Lord's host. Jesus declares himself in the book of Revelation, the captain of the Lord's host. Here he was speaking to Joshua, even at that time. But how was he dressed? As a warrior. This is who's defending you, gang. The captain of the Lord's host. He defends you. What shall I fear? Shall I fear any man? Why would I do that when Christ is so much greater? So much greater. The brightness of his glory. The express image of his person. The fourth thing. 
And that through here is that Jesus, or the thought here really, is that Jesus is not just the representation of God in the flesh. He is the fact, the exact likeness of God in the flesh. Now, I'm not talking about in a physical sense, you know. God's not a man. He's a spirit. So we're not talking about it in a physical sense. But if you can think of a stamp as a stamp is a perfect representation of what's, what's on it. That's what Jesus is, the expressed image of God, all that can be known of him, all that can be known of God. People say, well, there's a lot of things about God you just don't know. That's not true. Though, once again, we always want to read all of the text. How many times you heard the verse saying, oh, well, I have not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Read on. Read on. But he has in these last days revealed them unto us. How? By his son. You have, you can know. Read the whole thing, but how's it all done? Through Jesus Christ. You want to know? Study Jesus. Look to Jesus because he is the expressed image of the Father. Man, he loves you so much. Upholding all things, it says, by the word of his power. I quoted Colossians a little bit ago. 117, it says, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. We talked about that power of how he constrains everything in the universe. The laws of electricity says that, you know, positive charges repel. You have atoms that are, the nucleus is positive. Then you have the, uh, the neutral charges, and on the outside you, you have, you know, the electrons. But according to the laws of electricity, they should fly apart. But they don't. There really is no good explanation for it other than that verse. And by him all things consist. And then we get to the most important one, six. This is the sixth trait of his personality. By himself, he purged our sins. The Pharisees believed, and so many people today even believe, unfortunately, that their sins are purged by the keeping of some law and by the rituals and sacrifices. Paul emphatically states here that Jesus himself purged our sins. He took care of it. It was done on the cross. Tostelestai, it is finished. What's finished? Everything. All that was necessary to fulfill the law, the prophets, and everything in it concerning the Messiah, all that was required to restore mankind back to that pristine condition with God. The Bible says we've been given the gospel of reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God. We are reconciled to God. We're not in the process of being reconciled. We have been reconciled. God is no longer dealing with our sin. He dealt with it 2,000 years ago on that cross on the hill of Calvary. And Jesus took care of it then. Now he just wants you to learn of me, Jesus said. Take my yoke away. Learn of me. Why? He wants you. That's the gospel. There's the good news, gang. As the more we learn about Jesus Christ, the more we want to share that with people. Because the more we understand him, the more we will reflect that. I heard somebody say the other day, uh, we were just talking, but we were talking about this issue of you know, sin in the church and whatever. And, you know, because it's so easy to focus on that, isn't it? It's, it's too easy to focus on your failures, or more appropriately, the failures of other people. Okay? It's, it's, more, it's way too easy to do that because my sin on you looks so much worse. You know, it does. Because, well, well, you know, I have a reason why I did it, you know. But you, you're just a scumbag. 
you know, and you're a heathen and you just flat need to get saved. Now, listen, if we, listen, we, we are all growing in grace and mercy. Hopefully we're growing in grace and mercy in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Hopefully that's what we're doing. And you will if you focus on Jesus Christ. Whatever, think about this. Whatever you hang around, you know, the Bible tells us that evil communications does what? It corrupts good manners. So if you focus on that which is negative, and I'm not talking about positive thinking of Norman Vincent Peale garbage. I'm not talking about that. But when you focus on Jesus Christ and everything that he's accomplished and all that he, and how he thinks about you and how he feels about you, and you really understand that, how much love, how much more could he do? He's done it all. He favors you. He's blessing you. When you focus on that, how could you not extend that to somebody else? When you look to yourself and you see, man, I have failed the Lord so many times, but he has been so faithful to me, how could you not accept somebody else who has failed? You know, forgive one another, Paul says, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And it becomes easier to do once we focus on Jesus Christ, once we really get our hands around all that he's done and the fullness and his superiority above all things. It gets so much easier to do. So he is, you know, the eminent of, of all things. You know, he by himself, he purged our sins. There's nothing left to do. And let me just drive this part home before we see the last one, the seventh uh, attribute. I, I would even want to take it a step further. Because Paul does in the book of Galatians, which we'll eventually get to. If you believe that there is something that you can do, something, that maybe would make God favor you a little more, bless you a little more, if there's something you feel that you're not doing, I'm not trying hard enough, I'm not doing enough, listen to me, what you're in essence doing, even though you might not consciously be doing it, but here's what you're doing. You're taking away from what Jesus did on that cross. You're saying that it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't enough to reconcile you. And it was. Matter of fact, not only was it, it did. It's done. All you have to do is bask in it. All you got to do is bank on it. Even in my worst hour of my worst time of my worst day as a Christian, when I was there and I was so close to the edge, it wasn't funny. God never forsook me. He never turned his back on me. And he said, you know what, Doug, if you'll just let me fix it, I will. All I had to do was keep my eyes on him. He had never taken his eyes off of me. And so often we think that that's what happens. Oh, I've screwed up. Or like that young lady told me, I, I, didn't, you know, I knew I disappointed you. You didn't disappoint me. And you can't disappoint God. Why? He knows you. And he loves you anyway. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. It's not a disclaimer. It's not a cop-out. He does love you. And he does care about you. And he simply wants to show you favor. And he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Paul throws this in here because this is a position of power and of eminence. Jesus is at the right hand of God's power. For it was by him that he created all things. In the Old Testament, he appeared to Joshua, as I told you, as that victor, that, that valiant warrior, that, that knight. you know, and, and he appeared there in strength and in power. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us every day, constantly, forever. He's doing that. So thus Paul could say in Romans, if God be for us, who can be against us? It is Jesus Christ who justifies. 
because he is the justifier. He's at that right hand. Man, the right hand of his power has forgiven you, has justified you, sanctified you, will glorify you. So stand strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That sevenfold description is so powerful. Let's go ahead and look at verse 4. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Being made so much better than the angels. Some of your Bibles may say have become so much better than the angels. The real question here is, in what way was Jesus made better or became better than the angels? And somebody might be asking, and I've had this asked to me before, well, isn't Jesus eternally better than the angels? Isn't he eternally? Yeah, absolutely he is. But in what way then did he become better? How was he made better? Or complete is really what that word means. As our redeemer. And that answer is found in Hebrews chapter 2 when we get to it. And that's through suffering. Jesus was complete through suffering, Paul's going to tell us. Something that no angel ever did. There's an interesting thing that's been going on for a long time. And, and uh, it's the exaltation of angels. And, and maybe you have recognized this and maybe you've seen it. Um, it, it has always driven me crazy uh, when I see it because it, it really smacks of blasphemy, to be honest with you. And um, I mean, there's even, you know, there's like a song out there, I believe in angels. There's, this, there's books been written, all kinds of books been written, movies made. You know, I, I don't even want to go into it, but they, the, all this, you know, the ex exaltation of angels, and you know, the scriptures even talk about angel worship. Paul drives it home that he was above that, much better. If you're taking notes in, up there in verse 4, underline much. He's much better than the angels. <coughs> and so I've always found it really hard to just accept that. I always try to straighten people out. Every time they start talking, you know, on Facebook, once again, we're, we're in present-day media, you know, do, you know, type yes and share if you believe in angels. I'm going, are you serious? You know, first off, do I believe in angels? Well, yeah, because the Bible says, but what are they? Well, they're created beings, okay? We're going to get into that. I mean, but that's it. But in comparison to Jesus Christ, there is no comparison. They're created. He's not. He is their God, not the other way around. So, you know, Paul's making this because why? There was a lot of that that went on in, in, within the uh, Hebrew, uh, and, and, you know, religion. And so he addresses that. He was made much better than the angels. But he makes this point. As he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. By inheritance. How is it that Jesus obtained that? Well, through his inheritance, just like I said. Jesus being only, the only begotten Son of God, has received all that his birthright would demand. Thus Jesus would say in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, all things are delivered unto me of the Father. The good news for you and me is that because we are in Christ, we have become children of God, and thus we have become joint heirs with Christ. And that's a good thing. And in Romans 8, 17, he says, And if children, then heirs, and uh, heirs of God, 
and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And then in 1 John 4, 17, herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because he is, so are we in this present world. Jesus, because he was the heir, because he was the firstborn, we're going to get into that a little bit later, by inheritance he received everything from Father. Because we are joint heirs with him, we do too. And I mean, as far as what First John's is talking about. John says, as he is, so are we in the world. How is he? I, I mean, I want, to, I want you to think about this. How is Jesus to this day? What, what, what is he right now? First of all, Jesus is holy. Therefore, according to First John 4, 17, you're holy. Jesus is righteous. Therefore, you're righteous. Jesus is sanctified. Therefore, you are sanctified. Jesus is the justifier. Therefore, you are justified. You know, he is all these things. He's the Savior. Therefore, you are saved. You know, you are what he is. Why? Because you are in him. Now, you might look in the mirror and go, oh, that, uh, yeah, Doug, I really want to embrace that. But, you know, the reality is, is, whoo, 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 uh, yeah, I really, uh, yeah, don't really fit that, that, uh, yeah, I think you're, yeah, maybe you're mistaken. No, you, when you look at the outside, you're focusing on the negative. Why? Because this is a fallen this, this, this body hasn't been redeemed yet, okay? That's the end. That's the good. The, the resurrection is coming, gang, okay? The resurrection is coming, and this, this mortal shall put on immortality. This, this corrupted body is going to, going to be transformed in a moment in the twinkling of a guy, and thank God for that, you know, and we will be changed. Then our redemption will be complete, but our spiritual self, this is really how it is. God says, because you're in Christ, you are just like him. That's the way God sees you. Look at verse 5. For unto which angel said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Today I have begotten you. You know, this is a powerful statement. The rest of this chapter, you're going to see Paul begins to drive home the superiority of Jesus Christ over created angels. He makes it a, a strong, strong point, but obviously it was an issue, and it is with some people even today. So this term speaks of, you know, when he says, I have begotten you, that it really speaks of the equality of substance, uh, the, uh, an essential nature, if you will, between the Father and the Son. That's really what he's speaking of. It means that the Father and the Son share the same being. You know, they're of the same substance. There was actually a great division in the church that rose early. I won't get into all that history, uh, but uh, the Athanasius Creed came out of that, but that's for another study. So it means that they're the same being, that they're of the same substance. Thus, they are co-equal and co-eternal. So it's just the way it is. So this day, he says, I have begotten thee. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Now, we talked earlier just a little bit, and I told you we'd get back into it just a little bit, about the humanity of Christ. While the deity of Jesus is extremely important, because some modern Bibles really do not do that justice, it's extremely important in understanding the relationship between a father and son. We don't dare exalt his deity, and, and don't misunderstand me when I say that. We don't dare exalt his deity at the expense of his humanity. When the Son took on humanity, when Jesus came down, he became God incarnate. He became God. He always was, but in the flesh, he became incarnate God. 
And for the first time and only time in the history of the world, there was one, only one, that was fully God and fully man. The only one. It's ever happened. There is no book in the entire Bible that stresses this point more directly than the book of Hebrews. Why is it important to understand the humanity of Christ? Why? Why would he have done that? Because so many people, one of the, the, one of the simplest but kind of crazy questions I get asked, but, it, you know, the only dumb question is the one you don't ask, you know, so I, I always try to answer. But people will come up and say, well, you know, if God just wanted to save mankind, how come Jesus had to die? Why did he have to die? Well, because God had put into motion the law, of redemption, of the plan of redemption, and it had to be fulfilled. The problem is, is nobody could do it. So God, in his great mercy, came and did it himself. He told Abraham, you know, the Lord himself, or Abraham told uh, Isaac, the Lord himself shall provide the sacrifice. But Jesus' humanity is absolutely important that we understand it. Paul is going to address this even more when we get to chapter 4. So just let me just read this with you here. It's in uh, chapter 4. I'm going to read just a little bit of it. You don't have to turn it. You can write it down. For, uh, chapter 4, verse 14. Paul says, Then seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I've heard more than my share of preachers say that why Jesus did this. Jesus came, you know, in the form of a man to show us how to, 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 to walk with God. <laughs> not on your best day. <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't begin to do it. No way. He did it because it had to be done. He did it because he did it vicariously for all mankind. He came. Now think about this. Had Jesus, had, had God the Father, had, had the Lord not come in the form of man, had he not done that, we would have the excuse of saying, well, God is God. He doesn't know what it's like to be me. You know, I, I'm, I'm just a wretched sinner because I was made this way. You know, I'm just a wretched sinner. I did all these bad in, in things because, you know, I'm, I'm just screwed up in the head. And, and who's he to judge me? He's so much perfect. He's perfect. He's holy. Why? When he came and took on the form of man, he, he, he eliminated that. Because now I say, I have a high priest. I have somebody who knows my infirmities. He knows. He was tempted in all like manner, or in every point, Paul says, as we are, yet without sin. Why? Because he was living that life which was demanded of the law, that perfect life. He was doing it for you. And so vicariously, he lived that life for you. Then he was going to go to the cross, die a vicarious death for you, raise the vicarious resurrection, and then he will set at the right hand of the Father, which he, he does to this day, making intercessions for us. It's perfect. You know, that's what makes me relate to Jesus Christ so much because I know that he knows. Look at the suffering that he went through. Look at the things that he went through. I mean, I heard a guy one time tell me, he says, you know, one of the things that he says, one of the things I, I hate most is I just, I can't stand stupidity. He says, so when, when, I, when I hear people say stupid things, it really upsets me. I said, really? Think about Jesus. 
everything everybody said to him was stupid. I mean, you know, here's God who knows everything. One of the, in, the, in the gospel it says that he needed not that any person would tell him what was in the heart of man, for he knew what was in the heart of man. I can tell you, stupidity, you know. And yet, how was he? You know, he was loving. He was accepting. He knew. I mean, even Philip going, hey, Lord, just show us God. Just, just let you know. He's going, Philip, have I been such a long time with you? You know, and, but I knew it was in love, you know, because Jesus just knew us, man. So his humanity was very important that we never forget that. Verse 6, and again, when he bringeth the first begotten into the world, he saith, and all the angels of God worship him. Let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels, and of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. This term, first begotten, was, and is more of, uh, it's more of just a concept. Uh, it's a, it's a, it was a designation, is I guess a good way to put it. For the one who was the firstborn uh, son, because the firstborn son was the first in line for inheritance, okay? Uh, everything was going to him. It's just the way it is, and it's like that today even. The title first begotten or firstborn was given in order to indicate that the particular person stood at the highest position and was actually in the highest position of honor. He was always honored, the firstborn son, you know? That's the way Jesus is. He, they, he's the first begotten of the Father. And he says, let the angels worship him. I always think it's funny that, you know, so many people have put so much stock in angels, and we talked about that a minute ago, through books and songs and whatever, and yet they worship him, you know. We know that Jesus is superior, okay, because God himself would demand that the angels worship him. That's why he's superior. Jesus is superior because they are his angels. And I love that. They're his angels. They are his angels and his ministers. Thus the angels belong to Jesus. He is not among them. He is above them and he is superior to them. And then look at verse 8. I'm going to wrap it up here. But unto the Son saith he, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and loved and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath appointed thee, or anointed thee, excuse me, with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed." But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Even, well, if anybody ever, let me put it this way, if anybody ever doubted that Jesus was God, and, and many have, many try to say, well, he never claimed to be, which is not true. When we get to the Gospels, you'll see that. This verse really drives it home, you know, it is the Father who calls the Son here. Look at verse 8 again. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Thy throne, O God. This is what God's saying to the Son. The, son, the Father says to the Son, Thy throne, O God. You see that? Jesus is God. He absolutely is. And so many people just fail to, to read carefully when they read this. 
Verse 13, but to which of the angels saith he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation? It is safe to assume that anyone who sits in the presence of God is uh, illustrating by that very action that he has a right to be there. Does that make sense? That's what he's doing. There are no seats around the throne of God for angels. None. <laughs> None. <coughs> Why is that? Because they're busy praising and serving God. This is what angels do. It has been said that it is never a good idea to get too comfortable, if you will, around or in the presence of majesty. There's an old story, and I really I don't remember who told it, uh, but it kind of went this way, so I, I think I got most of it right. And it's about a man by the name of Edward Lear, who was an artist who was hired to give Queen Victoria lessons in art. He'd been going there for quite some time, and things were going quite well for Mr. Lear. And so he began to feel quite comfortable around Queen Victoria. And so he began to feel a little relaxed, to the point where he would stand in front of the hearth, and he would begin to just kind of comfort himself in front of the fire and kind of lean on it. Well, when he would do this, one of her other servants would stand by and would say, Hey, Mr. Lear, let me show you something over here. And so drawing his attention, so he would move and go over and look at something to the other side of the room. Now, nobody explained this to this guy, okay? But after several times, he began to get the hint. Every time he began to relax, okay, one of the other servants would direct his attention and take him somewhere else. What they were trying to tell him was that in the presence of his queen, it wasn't right for a subject to be so relaxed, Okay? But yet we see Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of God. If you ever question where he is in his eminence, this should settle it for you. It is the angels that are serving God, ministering to God. Jesus, because he is sovereign, is the one who is sitting on the throne, you know? Because that's where he belongs. Not only is he there, but he belongs in the throne of our, and on the throne of our life. You know, so we give him preeminence. So he goes on there and talks about the fact that they are ministering spirits. And they are ministering spirits. Thus, this term ministering means what? Serving. It, it means that all the way through the Word of God. So they're serving spirits. And so all angels are servants. They have to keep working so that the Son can take the posture of rest because he is the Son and because he is sovereign. So he gets to do that. Now, it is interesting that Jesus is also called a servant and a minister in the gospel, but this is part of his voluntary humility, not his essential nature, which it is of theirs. It's their essential nature. So they are also, though, our ministering spirits. Not only do angels minister to God, but because we are joint heirs with Christ, it says that he has sent them forth to serve us who are the heirs of salvation. I could give you many stories in my own life, and maybe you got some of your own, and sometime we'll get to it, where uh, you, know, you have had an encounter with an angel. you know, And uh, so often people have, and maybe they don't know. And of course, what's the Bible tell us? He says, you know what? Be nice to strangers, for many have entertained angels unaware. You know? So once again, gang, 
as we move through this, this great epistle, read ahead, it gets better and better and better. It is so amazing how Paul lays it out as far as the supremacy of Jesus Christ, his priesthood. And I love what he says about Melchizedek. And if you don't know who that is, read ahead. And he says, consider how great this man was. And of course, he was a picture, really, of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Great, great thing. Father, we love you so much and we thank you for this time. Lord, I pray for those sitting here and those listening by radio. That, Lord, Father, we would have a clearer picture of all that Jesus Christ has done for each and every one of us. That, Lord, as we focus on that, we will begin to reflect that which we focus on, Lord. Because we want you, Lord, Father, to, to, to reach others, Lord, Father, and use us. Send us, Lord. But send us in the mercy and the grace that you have bestowed upon us. Help us to show that to each other. And definitely help us to show it to the lost by simply sharing the good news, Lord Father, with them. We just want to be strengthened in you. We want to see others come to you, Lord Father. We want to see Jesus Christ exalted, Lord, not only in our lives, but in the lives of everybody. We love you so much. Pray that you would just bless those that hear your word, Lord Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.